Good morning, Grace Chapel. Well, I was not planning on recording this, but here we are. I woke up with a low-grade fever today, so figured, you know what? Oh, let's uh, go ahead and play it safe and record this. I'm glad that you're all gathering today. I'm glad that God's people can gather together to be together, to hear God's word together. And I pray that as we've been learning throughout the book of Acts, that nothing can stand against God's church, whether that is a virus, a Satan, ourselves, God's church remains triumphant. And I pray and hope that you celebrate that this morning. But I did want to come to you with the Advent sermon because I love Advent. Today begins the first week of Advent. We're going to push pause on the book of Acts for a little bit. And we're going to focus on the Advent in the Old Testament. Advent is taking the, taken from Latin and simply means coming. It's a time to focus on the coming of the Lord. Now, Advent, as I said, is my favorite time of the year. I'm thankful for the Advent season. It's part, partly because, well, if I'm honest, I'm the sentimental type. I like traditions. I like remembering things of the past that bring, uh, sounds a little cheesy, but bringing smiles to the present. I remember one year sneaking outside into the cold while my children were decorating the Christmas tree and I just went outside and watched them decorate and then took some pictures and I just remember just seeing the joy of young children sort of from the outside looking in just finding joy decorating a Christmas tree and just things like that and man just another reminder that time goes so quickly but that's why Advent is so necessary Advent is necessary because it forces us to slow down. Now don't confuse the world's understanding with Christmas and Advent, because Christmas season is chaotic, it's busy, it's a bit crazy. Now Advent, even though it covers the same time frame, has a very different focus. Advent says, let's slow down, look to the past, remember our Savior who has come. Look to the future, remember our Savior who is coming again, and find hope in the present because of what Jesus Christ has done and what he had, will do. So Advent forces us to slow down and think about Jesus. Now Advent happened thousands of years ago. Jesus came, he died, and he rose again. But Advent is also coming. Jesus is coming again to finish, complete, and perfect all that he has started. So as we begin this Advent season, the first week of Advent is all about hope. Jesus has come. Jesus is coming again. That, brothers and sisters, is our hope. Hope that is rooted in the past, but propelled into the present and fulfilled in the future. So our hope, rooted in the past, fulfilled in the future, secured in the present. Jesus, an eternity set with the Father, Son, and Spirit, the Holy Trinity, counseled together a plan of redemption, and they saved you and I, all who believe the Father so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Everyone who believes in the Son in his life, death, and resurrection finds salvation, and that salvation is applied by the Holy Spirit. That is our hope. That is the foundation of our hope, and that is what we must celebrate this time at Advent. So as we focus our hearts on Advent this morning, Let's turn to Isaiah 59 and look at verses 14 to 21. Isaiah 59, 14 to 21. Justice is turned back, says the prophet. 
and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Our sure hope this morning is because God in Christ makes all things new. All that is crooked, he makes straight. That is why our hope is rooted in the past, fulfilled in the future, and secure for us in this present. This morning, I want us to focus on three things as we walk through this passage. First, the crooked ways. We need to see just how broken things are before we begin. Second, we need to see that Jesus is the warrior king. He fights for his people. He goes to war. He is savior. And third, Jesus makes all crooked paths straight. He makes straight. He makes all things new. He is the restorer. So the crooked ways, the warrior king made straight. Our hope rooted in this past, fulfilled in the future, secure in the present, all revolves around Jesus, the warrior king who makes our crooked ways straight. This is what I want us to take away this morning, a reminder, an absolutely necessary reminder that Jesus has come and will come again. And with him, he brings hope. So first, let's consider the crooked ways. For us to see how great Jesus is, we need to understand how broken things are. Before healing, there must be brokenness. Now, have you ever pondered just how remarkably broken humanity is? I like what one hip-hop artist named Propaganda describes it. He says, at one, And at one time, we built pyramids. One can only wonder why we ain't wiped ourselves out yet. We're as good as it gets, crooked, clueless buffoons put a man on the moon and I still can't get cell phone reception in my room. It's crooked. That's crooked, isn't it? I mean, think about it. We put a man on the moon. We've continued to, to reach for the stars, but yet many of us can't even get cell phone reception in our own house. That's just insane, isn't it? Things, again, that's just a really kind of a silly example, but things are crooked and broken. Things are twisted. We're all a little crooked. The world is crooked. Everything is broken. Nothing is the way it's supposed to be. Me as your pastor coming to you via a recording is not the way it's supposed to be. This 
the very medium itself is broken. All of our ways are crooked. This is not the way it is supposed to be. But praise to God, he looked out and saw all this crookedness. He saw it during Isaiah's ministry and reminded Isaiah of his plan of redemption. Listen to verses 14 and 15. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for the truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. Justice turned back, righteousness standing far away, truth stumbling in the public square, uprightness cannot enter, prohibited from entering, truth lacking. And then those who leave their evil ways, those who pursue righteousness, are hunted down as prey. This is life in a fallen, crooked world. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. That same song I referred to a minute ago, Propaganda says this, What is man but rich soil, toiled in fine Hennessy, a beautiful garden that costs a pretty penny? Listen, it's freely given, but you've been warned. These halos stay balanced on the tip of our horns. We're crooked. What a picture of humanity halos balance on the tip of our horns. This is not the way things are supposed to be. Those created in the image of God are meant to wear halos as the capstone of God's creation. We are meant to mirror the image of God in all of creation, but we have fallen and we have rebelled. Little rebellious horns have grown out of our noggins, and these halos stay balanced on the tip of those horns. Now, early in the chapter, we we're confronted by the depth of the sinful depravity. Israel functions as a perfect mirror into our own depravity. Their sin is just like our sin. Look back at verses 2 to 3 in chapter 59. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. Sin separates. Sin separates what God intends to bring together and to keep together. Humanity once walked in the cool of the garden with God's sweet presence. But now, because of our sin, humanity hides from God, runs from God, seeks to rebel against God. Only the wages of our sin have brought us death. It has brought us separation from God and all the good he has intended for us. Now we walk alone in darkness. Our sins have hidden the face of God. Our sins have covered his ears from our, his ears from our cries. Brothers and sisters, we need to sit here for a moment because rarely do we sit and stew long enough in our own sin. Now, yes, for those who believe and trust in Christ, our sin no longer separates us from God in this way. But we often move so quickly away from who we once were and what we once were. But both Paul and Peter and even Jesus himself continue to go back to who we once were. Paul to the Ephesian church writes this in chapter 2, And you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Peter to the scattered churches in Asia writes, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see the important connection they make? It's especially clear in Peter. Knowing who we once were helps us be more thankful for who we now are. Knowing who we once were, sinners, dead in trespasses and sins, separated from God, helps us to know more, even more so who we are now, adopted, beloved children of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, chosen before the foundation of the world by our God. So we need to slow down this Advent season and remember the depth of our depravity. For then, once we grasp this depth of our sinfulness, we'll be able to understand the heights of Christ's mercy. Sin doesn't just bring separation. Sin also brings destruction. The result of the sin is crookedness and brokenness. Listen to verses 9 to 13. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like beasts. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. Speaking of oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart, lying words. Sin destroys. It separates and it destroys. It takes all that is good and breaks it. It removes justice from us. It covers up truth. It rejects God and his ways. So we hope for light, but find only darkness. We walk in gloom. We grope around like the blind. We, even though physically full of vigor and strength, we walk around as dead men and women because apart from Christ, we are just that. And our transgressions are multiplied before the Lord. Our sins testify against us. Our sins declare us as sinners, as rebels, as wicked and unrighteous. And our transgressions are ever with us. We know our iniquities. We continue to sin. We deny the Lord. We turn our backs on Him. And in our rebellion, we end up oppressing others. The heart is deceitfully wicked. But it's this exact crookedness which Christ comes to redeem. The Redeemer has come to make the crooked straight, and the Redeemer will come again to make all the crookedness in this world new. So let's turn to this warrior king. How does this coming Redeemer make crooked ways straight? He comes as just that, a warrior king. Verses 15, the second part of verse 15 to verse 18 are remarkable. Here we are granted a picture of the deep, deep love of Jesus. Verse 15, the second half. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. 
and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render payment. It begins with the Lord seeing all injustice, all crookedness, all oppression, and it displeased him. It was bad. It hurt the Lord to see this. It angered him. He burned red hot with anger. It was evil. In short, it's crookedness. The reality that things are not the way that they're supposed to be, this reality displeases the Lord. And if we're honest, it displeases us in certain ways, right? We want things to be as they should. We long for things to be right. I'd rather be with you this morning right now than recording this. That is what is right. That is what should be. When our van broke down the other day, just as a as a reminder, that's a clear thing of this is not how it's supposed to be. Vans are not supposed to break down. But then you still hope that even though it's broken down and we worked, worked it out so we're able to get a new one, that things would go relatively smoothly then. See, we have a hitch that we had on the back of the van. And this hitch, you know, it takes, it was good side, good for um, taking our bikes to go somewhere. So to go mountain biking or riding anywhere, we would throw our bikes on the bike rack that was attached to the hitch. Had a hard time getting the hitch off the old van. Uh, needed to find, thankfully, Amazon bailed me out $2 part, $2 tool that I had lost. Shipped on Amazon and got it the next day, was able to remove it. So I'm thinking, okay, that was okay. It should take 30 minutes or so to get a new hitch on. But we have this saying in our family. You, maybe you have something similar. Nothing is ever simple. Nothing is ever simple. It should take 30 minutes. It could have taken 30 minutes, but you know what? It didn't take 30 minutes. See, trouble actually began pretty quickly. Got the hitch off after ordering the tool on Amazon. And then I go to put the, the new hitch on and two of the weld nuts, they're the things that are in the, the car's frame where the hitch actually screws into. Those two weld nuts were stripped out, meaning you stuck the bolts in there and the bolts just popped right back out. Nothing is ever easy. Small thing, would have been a 30 minute job, but now I can't get it. I can't get it installed. And here's the worst thing. These require grade A bolts with a special size and dimension and a special unique spacer. You can't find them anywhere. I've been trying to track them down. They're really hard to find. I was told by the um, one company that, well, you can get them from the manufacturer, but you can only place a $500 order from the manufacturer. So that's the only way you can get them. So for two bolts, that carriage bolts and two serrated flange nuts that probably cost a total of $3, the only way to get them is to spend $500. Nothing is ever simple. This is not the way things are supposed to be. Now, I don't know if the, this failure of my hitch displeases the Lord as much, but it is not the way it's supposed to be. But what I do know is injustice displeases the Lord. Brokenness displeases the Lord. All that is wrong, he looks out, he sees, and it displeases him. So what does he do? He takes matters into his own hands. After all, he's the only one who is able to fix what is broken. His own arm brings salvation. His righteousness upheld him. And in verses 7 to 18, we have a beautiful picture of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords gearing up for war. This is a picture of Jesus, the warrior king. 
This idea of a warrior king is not new throughout Scripture. We saw even last week how when the Lord went to war for his people, Jehoshaphat and his people are there praising him. And as they're worshiping, as they're praising, the Lord goes into their enemies' camps and strikes them all down and causes them to strike each other down. The salvation belongs to the Lord. The battle is the Lord's because he's a warrior king. In short, God saves. The Lord saves. But he also judges. Salvation is of the Lord, but so is judgment. This image of Christ as the warrior king is picked up again in Revelation 5, where John looks out and sees no one able to open the scroll of salvation and judgment before him. And then he looks, and there's a lamb that looks as if it was slaughtered. And Jesus, the slaughtered lamb, goes, comes forth, opens the scroll, and execute salvation and judgment for his people's salvation, for those who've rebelled against them, judgment. Jesus saves, and Jesus judges. He is the warrior king. He goes to war for his people. He goes to war for you and I. This very morning, the God of heaven and earth, the Lord who put on righteousness as a breastplate, helmet of salvation on his head, garments of vengeance for clothing, wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. This King of kings, this Lord of lords is praying for you and for me this morning. The Lord Jesus saves by his shed blood. And the good news is not just that he came, but that he is coming again. He will bring both our final salvation and eternal damnation for those who remain in sin and disobedience. God is Savior. God is Judge. He is our warrior king. And he will come again as that warrior king. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses from his mouth comes a sharp sword which with to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of god almighty on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written king of kings and lord of lords this is jesus our coming king in whom we hope in and he comes to make all things new He comes to take that which is crooked and makes it straight. Going back to propaganda, in his last song in his album called Made Straight, he has this line. And we are not those without hope or hoping in hope alone. Resurrection shows that this land is not our home. We are sojourners living out what a past action bought us with the knowledge that we have yet to see the fullness of what it got us. We don't hope alone. Our hope is not a bare hope, but it is hope in an object. It is hope in Jesus the Lord, our warrior king. It is hope in his life, his death, and his resurrection. See, Advent and Easter are always deeply intertwined together. When we remember Advent, we must remember Easter. We live as sojourners, 
as exiles in this present world. We have lived and continue to live out of what a past action bought us, out of what the cross bought us, and we are still plunging the depths of its beauty and glory and wonder. We don't know the fullness of what it's got us. Jesus comes again to make all things straight, and he comes to bring hope. And here in verses 19 to 20, we see that Jesus grants three things to us out of that hope. First, in verse 19, hope leads to the world fearing the name of the Lord. The Lord comes pouring out wrath against all unrighteousness, and the people fear his name. This happened when the Lord fought for his people during the time of Jehoshaphat. The fear of God fell upon the kingdoms who heard the word of the Lord and saw that the Lord fought for his people. And this fear will continue to fall on all who disobey and rebel as the Lord continues to fight for his people. This morning, the Lord continues to fight for you and for me. And one day, on that day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And secondly, this hope leads to repentance. Look at verse 20. The Redeemer comes to the Lord's people. He comes to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from their transgression. What must we do to be saved? Repent, turn from sin, turn to Christ, trust in Christ, believe in Christ, and there find forgiveness for your sins, and there find hope in Jesus Christ, your God and my God. Hope that's rooted in the past, fulfilled in the future. That hope, because it is rooted in the past and the cross, fulfilled in the future with Christ coming in, it is secure for us, brothers and sisters, today, right here, right now, as we begin the Advent season. The third thing is that hope leads to faithful covenant proclamation. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 21. God comes to keep his covenant promises and to establish those covenant promises. I will be your God. You will be my people. The Lord is a covenant-keeping God. He promises to give us his word. He puts it in our mouths. He fills us with it. The Spirit of God falls upon God's people. He puts his word into our mouths. And as his ambassadors, we are heralds of his word. We proclaim the excellencies of God. We sing and rejoice of the hope that is ours because of Christ. The hope that Advent calls us to slow down to consider that Jesus died for us, rose again in power for us so that God can be our God and we can be his beloved children. And we will do this, notice, from this time forth and forevermore. For all eternity, we will have the word of God on our lips and will forever praise him. So let's start now. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has come. And Jesus is coming again. And this is the foundation of the eternal hope. This is the promise of God's covenant. This is the bedrock of Advent. The Lord saw our crooked ways and it displeased him. He came in might and power as a warrior king. And he has made our path straight. And he's remaking the entire creation new. This is our hope this morning. This is what Advent is all about. So brothers and sisters, hope in the Lord. Like I, like you, of all people, need to be reminded 
of what Jesus Christ has done, his blessed life, his sacrificial death, and his powerful resurrection. That Jesus Christ came and died for me. That Jesus Christ came and rose again for me. That Jesus Christ came and died and rose again for his beloved church. For us, for you, and for me. So brothers and sisters, hope in the here and now. Our hope is secured because it is bedrocked into the past, fulfilled in the future, and secure for us now. So fear God. Repent of your sins, trust in his covenant promises, and above all, above all, hope in our great warrior king who has come and will come again, our Father. You are our Savior. Jesus, you are our Redeemer. Spirit, you are the indweller. We have hope because of your salvation. We have hope, Jesus, because you came. We have hope, Jesus, because you are coming again. Help us to rest in the hope of your first coming. And help us to long for the hope of your second coming. May we long for the day when you make the crooked path straight. Help us to hope. Remind us of our present hope based in your past resurrection that will be assuredly fulfilled in our future. Allow our hope to go beyond mere knowledge but to be felt and experience deep within us, may we find our hope in the Lamb of God who was slain for our sins. And it's in Jesus' mighty, powerful, wonderful, mighty, magnificent, glorious name we pray. Amen. Grace Chapel, may you go in grace and peace this morning, trusting and hoping in our God who has come and our God who will come again. Hope in Him. Amen.